G'day, mate. Forty here. I want to tell you something very vulnerable. I just want to share with you right now. I would like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And yet, how did I get here? Start talking about gloomy topics such as、uh, the decline and fall of the Russian and Chinese empires. I mean, we discussed yesterday how it seems like Russia is not singing from the same playbook that、uh, the troops and the the media and the elite and Vladimir Putin—they're not all on board. I mean, but I just want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I just want people taking spiritual crack, not real crack, but the the spiritual crack that I have to offer. If you take my crack, Carlson said, "Happy Friday." If there's one thing we have learned about the people who make the rules, it's that they have no intention of following them. Any of them, ever, ever. They command you to wear a mask as you jog alone in the park while they head to dinner barefaced at the French Laundry. That happened. They harangue you about the carbon footprint of your lawnmower as they fly to Aspen on their private jets. You see that every day. How many members of Congress who voted to expand the police powers of the IRS don't pay their own taxes? More than a few. How many politicians who fervently support gun control have armed bodyguards that you pay for? Well, let's see every single one. We could go on and on and on. Whatever they're demanding that you do this week, you can be dead certain they are not doing it themselves. Everyone notices this; it enrages people, but it's often misinterpreted. People say this is hypocrisy, but it's not. It's privilege. When Nancy Pelosi walks into her hair appointment without a mask at the height of the COVID lockdowns. It's not because she forgot to bring a mask. No, she knows exactly what she's doing. Nancy Pelosi is affirming her position in the social order. Nancy Pelosi is in charge. You are not. Nancy Pelosi can do whatever she cares to do. You can't. That's the message she's sending. Another word for this is a caste system, which is increasingly what we have in the United States. Caste systems are common in poor countries, the countries from which most of our immigrants come. But it's the opposite of the traditional American system, which was imperfect egalitarianism. In the old America, every citizen, citizen was considered equal under the law, as well as in the eyes of God. Everybody had to follow the same rules because nobody, underneath it all, was more important than anyone else. We were all citizens. Citizens is a term you rarely hear anymore. Citizenship implies inherent rights—rights rights that politicians cannot, under any circumstances, take from you because they did not bestow them in the first place. You were born with them. But the people running our country no longer acknowledge this. They do not believe in inherent rights, nor do they believe in equality. You may remember how hysterical they became a couple of years ago when a few old-fashioned souls dared to say that all lives matter, which they certainly do. The people in charge hated that. They don't think that all lives matter. In their view, some animals are more equal than others. It's hard to think of a news story in recent memory that illustrates this phenomenon as clearly as what is happening on Martha's Vineyard. Two nights ago, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida generously sent a plane load of 50 illegal aliens from Venezuela to the vineyard, which is a small, famously affluent island off the coast of Massachusetts. Martha's Vineyard has everything you could ever want in the world except racial diversity. The island is whiter than a Swedish bluegrass festival. And DeSantis was trying to help. Under normal circumstances, the residents of Martha's Vineyard would have no choice but to smile and say, "Thank you, Governor DeSantis." When government officials send you the blessed gift of diverse immigrants or refugees, you must accept. That's the rule. It doesn't matter how disruptive these new people are. It's irrelevant how much they cost to support or how dramatically your quality of life may decline after they arrive. It doesn't matter if the crime rate spikes. 
if your daughter's afraid to go outside, if the schools become unusable, if the hospitals fall apart. It doesn't matter. You never complain. You take it like a man. You don't even mention it's happening, even in private text messages to your friends. If you do, you're a dangerous racist. You could wind up on a government list. That's how America works. Everybody knows it because it's been going on for a very long time. That's the rule. But it turns out the people of Martha's Vineyard aren't just anyone. They're the people who make the rules. And in this case, they had no intention of following them, not even for a day. The Venezuelans who arrived there two nights ago, bless their hearts, didn't know any of this. They had no perspective. They never heard of Martha's Vineyard. They were just thrilled to be there. Watch. I can't tell you, they are not angry at uh, Ron DeSantis. They are actually thanking him for having brought them to Martha's Vineyard. Well, yeah, they're not angry at Mark, Ron DeSantis. They're thanking him for bringing them to Martha's Vineyard. Why wouldn't they? They got a free, free flight to the vineyard. And at first, it seemed like they had every reason to be grateful because the people of the town appeared to welcome them. As they walked in from the airport, three and a half miles, they saw signs like this one. On Martha's Vineyard, the sign reads, we stand with immigrants, with refugees. All are welcome here. Hate has no business here. In other words, no one who worked for Donald Trump can go to Martha's Vineyard. But they didn't know that there was a caveat to that welcome. Hate is not welcome here. Okay. Then on Thursday, an elected official on the island gave the migrants even more reason for hope. And we're quoting. This is a community rallying to support immigrant children and families, said State Representative Dylan Fernandez. It's the best of America. And then to prove his point that Martha's Vineyard will do whatever it can for immigrants, Fernandez uploaded this picture onto social media because, of course, everything is a social media opportunity. The picture shows several Venezuelans gathered on a porch. One of them is wearing a shirt celebrating Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Notorious RBG, it says. Clearly he got that from a local. But then you look closely and you ask yourself, are these people really welcome on Martha's Vineyard? What are they eating? There's no kale or brie for the Venezuelans. No, instead they got corn pops, fruit loops, rice krispies with a side of paper plates and napkins. You got to wonder what the Venezuelans thought of that. This seems like a nice place. The food is garbage. It's less healthy than the crap we eat in Caracas. Way worse. Why are they feeding us this stuff? Corn pops, really? Fruit Loops? What message are you sending? <laughs> and of course, the message is really clear. The surfs eat garbage. I think, what do they eat? What, are the, what does your average Venezuelan eat? I don't know. Fruit Loops? Venezuelans love Fruit Loops. So the Venezuelans may have gotten a hint that they weren't really welcome there. But it was hard to know. The community seemed to be rallying behind them. But then, if there was any doubt in the morning, it was gone by afternoon because the message changed very quickly. And the new message was, get the hell out of here, brown people. The difficult challenges are, uh, we have, at some point in time, they have to move from here to somewhere else, right? We, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants, um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island, and so we, we don't, we can't house everyone here that lives here and works here. We don't have housing for 50 more people. <laughs> we need... We don't have housing for 50 more people, says the lady on an island that literally has more than 100,000 empty beds at that exact moment. 
because it's a seasonal place. And more than 100,000 seasonal residents are gone. So effectively, Martha's Vineyard was the largest dormitory in the United States. But no, there's a housing crisis. At some point, they're going to have to leave, meaning in like eight minutes max. So there was a guy who's the leader of a nonprofit group who stepped up to help the refugees. And he had a different take. He said the problem wasn't the housing at all. It was the migrants. And we're quoting now. It's like me taking my trash out and just driving to different areas where I live and throwing my trash there. This man told NBC News. Oh, they're trash. They're human garbage. They're not even real. They have no souls. Do they have souls, Venezuelans? Do refugees have souls? I don't know. They're just like trash. Someone dumped them on the front lawn. Let's give them Fruit Loops and get them out of here. Yeah. Call the truck. Have them hauled away. NBC News actually tweeted out that quote, calling our beloved sacred immigrant community, these non-documented immigrants, trash. And then once they realized that they'd revealed how they really feel, they deleted it a few moments later. Now, not everyone on the left, we should tell you, was so intent on sending these migrants away. Novelist Jane Chittick, for example, offered this alternative, quote, I would love to see the Obamas open up their huge property and erect tents and look after all these people while they're being processed, she said. Well, actually, you know, we're always in search of the one decent liberal left in America. Maybe Jane Chittick is the one because that's a pretty fair point. And Barack Obama has a long documented history of having people on his front lawn. In fact, he set up a tent city to house hundreds of people for, let's see, oh, himself, his own birthday party. So could he do that again? Of course. And he should because to do anything less than that, Barack Obama himself told us would essentially punish the people of Martha's Vineyard. Mistreating immigrants would rob them of what makes America a worthy country. Watch this. America is a nation of immigrants. That's our strength. And the notion that somehow we would stop now on what has been a tradition of attracting talent and strivers and dreamers from all around the world uh, that, that would rob us of the thing that is most special about America. Right. So if people don't camp out on your lawn, people have no right to be here in the first place. You're only hurting yourself. But Obama, even on Martha's Vineyard, where approximately 100% of people voted for him and love him, even on Martha's Vineyard, he could not make the sale. He could not get people who actually live there to agree with that. They did do one thing, though. They set up a GoFundMe, which they called an urgent plea. And they told us this was a way to help the migrants. And we're quoting from GoFundMe. Martha's Vineyard is a community of open-hearted individuals that view these migrants as people, not political pawns or trash. <laughs> However, continuing the quote, the island is a resort community with only 20,000 year-round residents, and it already faces a shortage of affordable housing and off-season jobs. Oh, it's just not rich enough. They don't have enough beds. It's one of the richest places in the United States, and it has more available beds than any other place, probably in North America right now. But it's just they can't swing it. But you can do your part by donating to the fund. And by donating the fund, they'll help the migrants. Well, a lot of people believed it. The fund raised $40,000. But here's the best part. You're going to love this part. How much of that money is going to the migrants? Oh, none. None. 
An update on the fundraising page reveals that the funds will instead go toward, and we're quoting, building up a reserve to assist situations like this in the future, rather than directly helping this group of migrants in their situation. In other words, Martha's Vineyard is building itself an endowment, just like Harvard. That's amazing. An endowment for Martha's Vineyard, not to help anyone, but because why wouldn't Martha's Vineyard want an endowment? Okay. Well, yesterday at the request of Martha's Vineyard's representatives, they broke it up. The governor of Massachusetts, the thoroughly loathsome Charlie Baker, called up the National Guard. Charlie Baker, Mr. Compassion, literally brought in the army to remove brown people from the whitest island in the Atlantic Ocean. So once the army brought them off Martha's Vineyard, they were sent to a military base on Cape Cod. A military base. How welcoming. <laughs> Cape Cod, by the way, is a lot more Republican than Martha's Vineyard. So let's send him to them. So here's the scene of the migrants being escorted out after less than 48 hours on that jewel in the sea, Martha's Vineyard. Thank you so much for being here, everyone. As we're going to show you as we're, as we're leaving you today, a live look in Massachusetts. We're showing the, the ferry carrying migrants who have been dropped in, Mass, in Martha's Vineyard have arrived in Cape Cod. That bus you see there that is heading to Joint Base Cape Cod. Well, you got to say, they don't mess around. The liberals aren't joking. So the rest of the country, just pick a city. Pick a city in the country and ask the person after a few drinks who runs it, like, how many refugees do you have living here? How many migrants, many of them undocumented, how many illegal aliens are living in your city? And what does that do to the services in your town? Not one of them is as rich as Martha's Vineyard. And they basically will tell you, we just have to live with it. No one wants to use the schools anymore. The hospitals are a complete mess. Our crime rate is up. The city looks like crap. But there's nothing we can do. The government sent them here. Oh, but Martha's Vineyard, well, they don't play. They bring in the army in a day and take him out like the garbage. So there's a lot of irony here, and we're going to try to unpack it as quickly and crisply as we can. But it was just a day ago that we were told that Ron DeSantis was a human trafficker. He was, in fact, comparable to Adolf Hitler, said Ken Burns, America's filmmaker, because he had organized the transportation of migrants from his state to Martha's Vineyard. Watch. This is so cruel and, and so unnecessary, so uncalled for, and so brazen, uh, it shocks the conscience of any fair-minded human being. This tactic by supposedly Christian-right politicians like DeSantis, Arizona's Doug Ducey, and Greg Abbott of Texas, is about as unchristian as it gets. Stephanie, that is not a political stunt. That is an act of evil. And it is an act of evil being done by evil men. Some politicians would rather not only have an issue, but exacerbate it to the extent of literally human trafficking, as you said. And sending them to destinations because you want to own In a country where a woman with a fetus inside of her with no brain has to travel a thousand miles to get an abortion. Look, here is short Ron DeSantis and, frankly, Greg Abbott and Doug Ducey. We hate immigrants. Get the F out, and we will help you get the F out. <laughs> These people. <laughs> Morning Joe literally had the chipmunk on to talk about how it's human trafficking. And then his lady has to get abortion. There's not enough abortion, by the way. Who mentioned abortion? I don't know. Mika wants more abortion. Okay, Mika, settle down. Now, these exact same people are applauding Massachusetts for using the military 
to remove undesirable immigrants, trash, trash they promised to safeguard to a military base. I mean, what? <laughs> is anyone noticing this? Ah. What's interesting is that this has been going on in other forms for quite a while, for several months now. The governor of Texas has sent busloads of migrants from the border to places like D.C. and Chicago. It got some attention. We kind of enjoyed it, but most people didn't notice. But the second brown people arrive in Martha's Vineyard, whoa, swarms of reporters descended on the scene because they'd been there before. Yeah, they know Martha's Vineyard. They don't know a ton about the south side of Chicago. Brownsville, what? But Martha's Vineyard, are you joking? CNN reported there was pandemonium. This is the location. This is the one uh, homeless shelter that they have on the entire island. There are five different towns here. St. Andrew's Parish House can usually handle 10. They've had to uh, increase the number to 50 uh, of immigrants who will be here after they were sort of unceremoniously dropped uh, off on planes, two different planes, uh, in Martha's Vineyard. Look at the glasses on that guy. Are the glasses on TV people getting more complex by the day, or is it just something old, the old among us imagine? In any case, just put it in some perspective before we proceed. This is 50 people. 50 people. We've had 2 million people come here illegally. Where did they go? Well, they went to probably every state in the country. The Biden administration flew them there to change the demographics of America forever. That's just true. Sorry. And no one said a word. But 50 people? It's chaos in Martha's Vineyard. So why is only Ron DeSantis a human trafficker for doing this? Why is, Ron, why is only Ron DeSantis a human trafficker for doing this? It's interesting. According to Gavin Newsom, he's a kidnapper. Why did no one say that about Greg Abbott or Charlie Baker or Joe Biden, for that matter? As we've said, for more than a year, the Biden administration has flown illegal migrants throughout the country, often in the middle of the night. We showed you footage of these flights. They're happening in secret. Secretly flying people around the country? Isn't that what the cartels do? But Biden is doing it. And by the way, to his credit, he said he would do it. During the presidential campaign, he promised to relocate migrants throughout the U.S., in fact, he announced that America has room for millions and millions of illegal migrants. Watch this. We could afford to take in a heartbeat another two million people. The idea that a country of 330 million people cannot absorb people who are in desperate need and who are justifiably fleeing oppression is absolutely bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. Yeah, it's bizarre. You're a bigot if you're not into it. By the way, again, just for perspective, the one thing that should never be partisan is immigration policy, because immigration policy is the one policy that's irreparable. It changes your country forever. So you should have a broad consensus about what you want your country to become before you tamper with the formula. But someone like Joe Biden, who is only partisan, that's it, doesn't care. By the way, what happened after Biden transported all these people around the country, hundreds and hundreds of thousands? Well, in one community in Florida, Florida, a community that can, quote, afford more legal migrants, a 24-year-old Honduran man ended up murdering a father in his own home. That was in Jacksonville. So that didn't get a ton of attention, but apparently people on Martha's Vineyard were watching. They don't want that. And that's why the minute Biden's voters have to deal with Venezuela and seeking the American dream, they call in the National Guard to ship them to military installations. As Florida's governor said yesterday, this really does have to end. 
And all those people in D.C. and New York were beating their chests when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk, and they're so upset that this is happening. If you have folks that are inclined to think Florida is a good place, our message to them is we are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And, yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Yeah, greener pastures. Aspen next. And, by the way, every Ivy League college, all seven of them, And then maybe you hit Wesleyan and Bowdoin and Stanford, the places that support above all other institutions in this country that support illegal immigration, that have more funding per capita than any other institution in the United States. They're the richest places in America are college campuses, liberal arts college, elite liberal arts colleges. How many migrants and refugees are they taking? Zero. Let's hope the next stop in this process is there. And let's also hope that the governors of sane states are watching how Democrats handled this. Within 24 hours of having immigrants dumped on their shores, the people of Martha's Vineyard had the military move them out. Why is nobody else doing that? True. There's no longer any reason that Republicans shouldn't do that. This is the template in Texas, Arizona, Florida, etc. They should do the exact same thing. Chabak Moore is the editor-in-chief of Outspoken, a contributing editor at The Spectator. He joins us tonight. Chabak, thanks so much for coming on. This, In some way, you know, it's easy to mock. These people are just, are be, they're literally beyond parody, um, and they lack all self-awareness. But they're also very effective. Like, they don't want illegals in Martha's Vineyard, and they're just not going to have them. And the military took them out. What, what, what's the lesson there? Oh, absolutely. And as someone who knows this type of liberal quite well and spent virtually my whole 20s in the Cape and Islands area as a minimum wage seasonal worker, not as a rich person. I know these people very well. There's not a question in my mind that if this had been 50 white Ukrainians, they would have thrown together a parade. They probably already have the flags out. They would have been lining up to adopt them, host them in their guest bedrooms, uh, parade them around social media. Look at my little pet Ukrainian. Me and Dimitri are going apple picking. You know, uh, they're fundamentally racist. They are extremely racist human beings. Now, this is going to very uh, upset them a lot because, you know, unlike when they call us racist, we just laugh because it's so clearly not true and it doesn't affect us. But they don't like being called racist and they don't like these things being pointed out to them because it really hits at the bone and the core of who they are and how they view the world. Race is very, very important to them. They think about it, they obsess over it. Yes. And frankly, they don't want people who don't look like them in their little vacation homes. Well, that, that's such a smart point. I don't think the average person is brooding about race all day. That's a really ugly thing to do. Race is unchanging, so like, why would you brood about it all the time? They are obsessed with it. They're obsessed with race. And that suggests to me there's something really ugly inside them. And can you imagine the optics if they put... 50 Ukrainians uh, over to a military base. <laughs> but they don't care if they're doing it to the brown people from Venezuela because, as you had mentioned earlier, one of them just said they're like trash. Uh, it's dark stuff, and it reveals exactly who they are. And we've always yeah. known this is who they are. They reveal themselves like this is exactly who they are. Ah, boy, is that true. So true. Chadwick Moore, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Chad. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mr. Tucker. So apparently the locals turned out in droves 
in Martha's Vineyard. All right. They showed up carrying maps. Wasn't that thoughtful of them? They came carrying maps to help the brown people from Venezuela get the hell off their island. But uh, some of the teenage girls were quite interested in uh, dancing with the with the vigorous migrants. Right? It's not unusual that uh, the young women choose to side with, with migrants over their own kind because the migrants are more exciting, they're more vibrant, they're more masculine. And so the, the teenage girls and the young women just loved up these migrants and loved them so much they gave them maps to get the hell out of there. So migrants filed out of the church they'd been sleeping in for two nights to hugs from the local volunteers. They left with full bags and new cell phones. And as they boarded the three white buses that would take them to the ferry, many cried. <laughs> so the the liberal news media is all about how welcoming the people of Martha's Vineyard have, have been in reaction to this mean, cruel Republican stunt. But uh, How welcoming do you think the people of Martha's Vineyard would be if every day 50 new migrants showed up, right? It's very easy to be welcoming one off, all right? I've had a lot of first dates, all right? I can make a really good impression on a first date, right? Not so many second dates, but but for one date, I, I could pull it off, all right? I, I remember Sandra Singlow tells this story that uh, she was having a gathering at her home. Sandra Singlow's a Southern California institution. She's a professor of uh, performance and creative writing at USC. She's a regular on public radio. She's written books about her life in Van Nuys. And so she had a bunch of women in their 30s, like all educated, professional, high-achieving women with their perfect Tupperware containers. And it uh, turned out that every single one of them had dated me. And they were at first, you know, quite excited to meet this, you know, interesting, charming Australian until they until they got to know me. And, uh, and then the, the dream died. But it's very easy to put up a good performance one time. Remember in the Bible, uh, Sarah tells Avram, look, Go make a baby with my maidservant, Hagar. Right? So many people have many fine intentions. And if you don't test them too much, they may very well follow through with their good intentions for a few minutes, even for a day. But uh, if 50 migrants keep getting dropped off at Martha's Vineyard every day, I would expect they would get a very different reception. Like I can keep up a a polite face for for a few hours, but eventually the real forty is going to come out. I don't care what they say. I just I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You just you can't you can't repress my spirit, even if it's socially frowned upon. People don't like out groups, bro. Look, look, look. The, these uh, teenage girls here at this Episcopal church. What is it with the Episcopalians? Like, why are they encouraging? illegal immigration. Why are Episcopalians dominating our institutions, shoving our institutions to the left, shoving our political policies to the left? They dominate our elite. They dominate banking. They dominate law. They dominate the academy. What is it with Episcopalians and their left-wing agenda, this tidy group, right, exercising disproportionate influence over public policy, over culture, 
They occupy the high ground uh, of American elite status, Episcopalians. They just dominate, man. And here they are outside an Episcopalian church, and these Episcopalian girls are welcoming these brown Venezuelan immigrants. But how welcoming would they be if these immigrants were pouring in day in and, and day out? It's about time that someone brings up the Episcopalian question. Most people are too afraid. It's like, oh, the, the Anglos, the Episcopalians, they occupy the high grounds of our culture. I, I'm too afraid to go up against them. They dominate politics. They dominate NGOs. They dominate the academy and law and banking and finance and Wall Street. They, they, they know how to get things done. I'm not willing to go up against the Episcopalians, but I am willing. All right. I will stand and say the Episcopalians are pushing, shoving, driving our politics to the left. It's about time someone calls them out for their anti-American attitudes. Gosh darn it. Do you remember that there was a time when uh, Christianity was not wimpy, right? There was a time when nationalism and Christianity went together like ham and eggs. So I've been reading a book, Peter Ackroyd's 2012 book, Foundation, the history of England from its earliest beginnings to the Tudors. Tudors, very raunchy show on, uh, on on Netflix. Very, very potent stuff. Don't don't recommend it. It uh, it may well place your sexual sobriety in danger. So Christianity and nationalism. All right, that's not some new thing. All right, that that's not something that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt invented. All right, or Andrew Torber. Andrew Torber, the owner of Gab, he's come out with a book on Christian nationalism, but. Uh, Christian nationalism has been an important thread in Christianity for about uh, 1,600 years, all right? So, yeah, there are universalist threads in Christianity. There are threads talking about the, the beauty of all of God's children and why can't we just all come together? But there are also considerable nationalist threads as well. You just can't take, oh, this is my favorite text and this is my favorite text, therefore Christianity is universalist. I was just listening to to Richard Spencer today. I mean, he's he's not particularly learned when, when it comes to religion. He, he thinks that there's like this essential universalist quality to Christianity, and there simply isn't, right? There are universalist and particular strands in Christianity, in Judaism, and in Islam. So uh, Richard has this idea that uh, that uh, all, all these different cultures, right, had opposition to homosexuality. So that didn't make uh, Judaism special. What made Judaism special were its stories. Well, the opposite is true. Many of Judaism's stories were developments upon ancient civilization stories, but Judaism's prohibition of male-on-male sex is pretty much unique in the world, right? In the ancient world. Pretty much every other ancient culture, ancient civilization, had no problem with men-on-man sex. It was Judaism that stood up and said, stop, that's an abomination. You need to keep the, the sexual genie in the heterosexual uh, verging on a monogamous bottle, and that's what changed civilization. Now, this brings up something that's very painful for me to discuss. As you know, nobody's done more than I have to fight against homophobia. And I have a good friend of mine. He's always whining. He's always complaining. He's always taking offense. 
that uh, pretty much every time he goes to the newyorktimes.com there's some photo of dudes kissing and i tell him get over it man it's uh, 2022 like love is love but no he never becomes blasé he never becomes desensitized to that every time my friend sees a photo of two men kissing on the front page the front forward of the new york times he feels it as a visceral assault right he feels like he is being beaten down he feels like demons are running the new york times and i'm trying to educate this guy trying to help him to to get over his homophobia but but no matter how much i try to re-educate him every time he encounters photos of dudes kissing in the New York Times. He experiences as a visceral assault on everything he holds sacred. And then, I think it was yesterday, he just blew his top, man. It, it wasn't pretty. I, I I can't repeat the things he said. I just couldn't believe the level of, of bigotry that was flowing from my friend. But apparently yesterday, when he went to the New York Times, like over breakfast, as he typically does, right, he, he likes to get this day started with looking at the Drudge Report, and then the LA Times, and maybe some Steve Saylor, and then go over to, to the New York Times. So he's sitting there eating his breakfast, clicks over to the New York Times, and no, it's not a still photo of dudes kissing. It's action video. It's like highlights from TV shows and movies of dudes kissing. Like he's just trying to eat his breakfast and get informed about the news. And there's like moving action video right there on the top of the New York Times of dudes kissing. And he's trying to digest his breakfast, and he feels it like as even more intense, visceral assault on everything that he holds sacred. So won't you join me in praying for my friend that he soon overcomes this, this you know, really god-awful homophobia? I mean, why can't he just celebrate that the, the love is love and finally for the first time in, in american history you know gays are now free to love other gays gosh all right back to peter Ackroyd, foundation the history of england from its earliest beginnings to the tudors for their part the kings of england were aware of all the advantages of the roman faith wow so apparently english kings loved christianity they found that christ was a more powerful support in war than the pagan gods they found that the Christian God offered more effective lordship than Thor. So the Roman Catholic Church simply preferred the rule of strong kings and unified governments. It made the work of religious control much easier. Wow! So Christianity and nationalism went together like ham and eggs. And we're talking 1,500 years ago, right? The priests were the literate members of the kingdom, right? So when legal documents and title deeds and proclamations of every kind were to be published, the priests were absolutely indispensable administrators of the state. Christian nationalism. Right? The kings were happy to adopt a quasi-liturgical role as the embodiment of the people in public ritual. So Christianity helped the kings enhance their authority. Right? Christianity helped the kings enforce respect and ensure obedience. Kings and saints appear in England and in some other societies at about the same time, right? And they are frequently the same thing. We've got King Edward, King Athelbert, now known to posterity as Saint Edward and Saint Athelbert.
Now, there were occasionally some pagan reactions, so King Sigebert of Kent was killed by two of his kinsmen for the tiresome practice of forgiving his enemies. So Christianity brought unity to the kingdom. Christianity has frequently operated as a unifying force in Christian nations, ergo increasing nationalism. Nationalism means that you strongly, viscerally identify it with your people, which will always have a significant, oh my God, I hate to say this, racial component. So Christianity for hundreds of served as a force for nationalism and included in that is racial identity. Oh my God. Apparently, people who pray together, stay together, form a more perfect union. So the encouragement of moral discipline by the priests had a material effect upon the social discipline of the country. Christianity went hand in hand with developing a more coherent, effective, and moral society. Right? So the various regions of England slowly came together, and the single English church essentially required a single English nation at this stage. Christianity, nationalism, working together hand in hand. Right? So... You have mass Christian conversion turns all of the people essentially into the English race. So race often has a religious component. Nationalism often has a racial component, a religious component, a civic component, and an ideological component. So just because someone identifies as a civnat, right? So they're civnat in the streets and they're ethnonat in the sheets, right? Just because people see a religious component to their nationalism, such as Christian nationalism, doesn't mean they don't also see a civic component and an ideological component and a racial component. And just because people may identify with, say, a, oh my God, an ethnic component to nationalism, doesn't mean they also don't identify with a religious and ideological and a civic component as well, right? People are just cookie cutter, oh, all about the civ nat man, or just all about the ethno nat man, or I'm just all about Christ is king. Oh, I'm just all about the ideology of, you know, all men are born inherently equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. People are complicated. Right? There, there are many levels to national identity. So let us gather together. I, I'm here to help people sing, right? I want to bring the world to sing in perfect harmony, all right? And so we can recognize that some people may relate more to the religious component of national identity and other people may relate more to the civic component other people may relate more to the ethnic component other people may relate more to the ideological component but these different groups are not inherently our enemies they're not a bunch of cocks just because they identify as civnat or they're christian nationalist or they believe that you know all men are created equal right so you have the venerable bead don't we don't we love the venerable bead all right he talked about the holy church of the english nation you know, of course, that, that excludes the, the Welsh and the Picts. But England, as we understand it today, was created by the Christian church. Oh, my God, Christian nationalism. The church has long been an essential aspect of government throughout the West. Right? The boundaries of Christian dioceses have essentially followed the frontiers of old tribal kingdoms. Bishops uh, tend to be aristocrats and members of various royal families of the land. So when the king would call a church synod in London, 
you would have secular as well as spiritual lords would attend because this was proto-Christian nationalism. The king's edicts would invariably take on a Christian tone. The archbishops would draw up national law codes in consultation with the king. Only after the arrival of the Normans in England in 1066 was there beginning of any formal separation between church and state. So before that, in spirit and in practice, Abbots and bishops were often part of the war bands of the great magnates. So you have these large organizations, large Christian organizations known as minsters. You have communities of priests and monks that essentially minister to their surrounding areas. So these are the original expressions of the Christian England, beginning really in the 6th, 7th century. They have all the energy and power of first things. So these Christian groups are centers of patronage. They are centers of learning. They maintain trade and agriculture. So it's not just Christianity in church, right? Christianity's implanted not just with the state, with the monarchy, with the king, but with maintaining trade and agriculture, right? These Christian ministers would organize the countryside. They would uh, organize rent payments and food. They were essentially acting as royal courts. They were an essential part of the monarchy, the and Christ was king, and that had a national, an ethnic, an ideological, a religious component. So people back then didn't believe in these buffered strategic autonomous selves where everyone you know is able to rationally decide what what they're going to do. No, they understood that. Uh, our world is constantly interpenetrating with other people's world. So Christians and secular leaders wanted to maintain order and reduce contagion. All right, what's going on with uh, Putin? To quote somebody also quite famous, it's no, no, it isn't the beginning of the end, but it might turn out to be the end of the beginning. Hmm. Um, this is the first phase of the war. The Ukrainians, first of all, they, they resisted being conquered completely. And now they've proved that they can beat the Russians on an open battlefield, which they've done. And this is the first time, in my estimation, the Russians have been beaten on an open battlefield like this since December 1942. So that's a pretty big moment. And the humiliation of it, believe me, is goes deep into Russian military circles. But the Russians won't give up. Putin is very determined that this war will go on. And so he's looking at ways of increasing what we've begun to call crypto mobilization. He won't yet declare full mobilization, though in due course he might. But at the moment, he's undergoing a process of crypto mobilization, which is like, as you were speaking with your last guest, uh, Prigozhin of the Wagner Group, trying to get people in prison to sign up. Yeah. They're, they're, they're scraping the barrel everywhere they can what, to increase their numbers. What is the impact of that, do you think? I mean, I asked about the, the likelihood of greater atrocities, if that's possible, to contemplate because of the kind of prisoners that, you know, because of the kind of recruits that are now being put into the front line. Yeah, it's an absolute certainty. I mean, what Prigozhin said, and which, this is all on, on, uh, on video now, we've all seen it, it's gone, it's gone live and it's absolutely genuine. He makes a speech to them. It's, it's like something out of the dirty dozen. Yeah. He said that he says the only way you'll get out of this place is if God lets you out and then you'll be in a box. Mm. But if you join up, you'll get out today. You'll get out today and you sign up for six months. And he said, and we'll put you on the front line and we do all the dirty jobs so you might get killed. And if you disobey an order or try and desert, we will shoot you without without question. Mm. But if you're still alive at the end of six months, we'll, we'll let you free and you can go home without a stain on your character. So these people are being recruited to be quite suicidal 
and take their chances of still being alive at the end of six months. I mean, they will be the worst sort of soldiers. They will, and, and in a way, they won't make any strategic difference because you can't fit these sort of brigands into a proper combined arms strategy with professional soldiers. But undoubtedly, they will do a lot of harm and damage in the areas that they go to. And remember, you know, Prigozhin himself, the, the commander of this Wagner group, who've, who've already got about 10,000 uh, convicts serving with the Wagner group, he did nine years in prison for robbery before he ever knew um, uh, Putin. So he himself yeah. knows what it is like to be in a Russian prison. Well, that, I mean, all of that is a terrifying... I think we all know what it's like to be in a, a Russian prison. It's not a very happy place. Hey, everyone. Peter Zion here. Hello again from Lake Louise. Uh, the news as of this morning is that the Germans have nationalized a couple of physical assets, uh, refineries specifically that belong to Russian state-owned oil company Rosneft, multi-billion dollar assets. We've always known this was coming. Uh, as soon as you have the Germans and the Russians having a dispute over economics and strategy, they were going to start drawing lines, and this is one of the big ones. Now, the German strategy for dealing with the Russians going back two centuries has been pretty straightforward. They want to avoid a war, because wars between the Germans and the Russians are awful. They fight in Poland, they fight in Ukraine, lots of people die, the weather's horrible, the terrain is wide open, they both commit atrocities, it's just wretched. So they try to avoid it, and they do that by trying to entangle their economies so they have a vested interest in not fighting. But ultimately it doesn't work out, and they end up fighting, and it's horrible. So then they don't have to entangle again. What we're seeing now is the disentanglement and the preparing for a direct confrontation. The Germans, of course, hope it won't come to that. History suggests that hope is largely in vain. Uh, that's the bigger strategic picture. The economic picture is almost just as bold because we have now had direct entanglement between the Europeans and the Germans for going on 30 years, and now that all becomes unwound. So the Germans have fired the starting gun with some multi-billion dollar assets they're taking away from the Russians, expect every single joint venture that the two sides have and lots of property on both sides to basically be unwound and return to their national authorities, and that is the end of this phase of Russian-European integration. Don't count on it coming back anytime soon because the demographic pictures on both sides are just atrocious. So this is where it gets real, and this is where we have a sharp severing. We'll talk about what's going on with the China. Okay, hey everybody, Peter Zayn here, coming to you from Montreal, where I, the, uh, the got a hold of some Turkish drones and used it to completely obliterate the Armenian country of 10 million people that has basically hitched itself to uh, Putin's star. And the Poles, the Latvians, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, the Finns, uh, the Swedes, they have been chomping at the bit for years to try to take Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus down to size and basically peel Belarus out of the Russian orbit. They will now have the opportunity. And it's unlikely that anyone in Europe or the United States is going to try to stand in the way. If anything, they're probably going to be encouraged to do it. So unless Lukashenko sues for peace with the Balts and the Nordics, very quickly, uh, we should count on seeing him being brought up on war crimes before very long, because after all, he did provide the access that was necessary for the assault on Kiev early in the war. Uh, a little bit different are things going on in the Caucasus, not in Nagorno-Karabakh or Azerbaijan and Armenia, but in Georgia. Now, here I do expect things to be a little bit more circumspect. The Georgians tried to call Russia's bluff and invade their former secessionist republics of North Ossetia and Abkhazia several years ago in 2004, and it was a trap, and the Russians were able to destroy the Georgian army. So the Georgians are not going to do this until a couple of other countries in the region have already pulled this off successfully. So look to Armenia and Azerbaijan first, and then second, look to Moldova. There's a small secessionist republic there called Transnistria. It's only 10% of the population of a country of like 3.5 million people. There's not much going on there. But the Russians intervened decisively right at the end of the Soviet collapse to basically make sure that Transnistria could be functionally independent under Russian sponsorship. But unlike the... So I've been reading the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. One of the most commonly pursued historical questions is, you know, where did the Holy Roman Empire or where did Rome, the Roman Empire, fall? And it's not that complicated when the marginal costs of belonging to the Roman Empire exceed the marginal benefits, then entities start peeling away. When the marginal cost of being your friend right, starts to exceed the benefits, people will start peeling away from you. And now we're seeing the beginnings of 
entities wanting to peel away from the Russian and Chinese empires. And it's funny, a lot of people on the alt-right, such as Coach Red Pill, right, talk about how China and Russia are going to defeat the United States because they're more homogeneous. So China definitely is more homogeneous than the United States. But uh, Russia is is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious empire. And right now it does not look at all like China and Russia are going to outlast the United States. What instead we're seeing are the Chinese and Russian empires falling apart and America reigns even more strongly and more powerfully than it has ever done before, right? The 20th century was the American century. 21st century will be even more the American century. I mean, China's falling apart in front of our eyes. Russia's falling apart in front of our eyes. The West, in particular the United States, has never on a relative basis stood more, more strongly. And so even though we have you know, all these de degenerate trends in our country and you know, some of our advertising for our armed forces is not nearly as, as tough and mean as what the Russians and the Chinese use, that doesn't mean that the Russian and Chinese societies and armed forces are more effective than ours because it's simply not working out. Why do I think they are falling apart? Demographics, right? They are in far worse demographic situation than the United States. So Russia's in terminal decline. Uh, China is going to have about half of its current population in, in approximately 40 years. So demographics would be number one. Uh, number two, uh, China has always been a big pyramid scheme. They, they operate with astronomical uh, amounts of debt. I mean, far more debt than the United States. So uh, China's land is incredibly polluted. Russia's never been able to manufacture consumer goods worth a damn. Uh, the, the lifespan in Russia has just been in terminal decline for, for about 40 years. Uh, almost all the world's great universities are in the United States. They're not in Russia, and they're not in China. Like, which... Chinese consumer product you most associate with quality? None. I mean, when you think about Chinese-made goods, you think of crap. Now, not everything they make is crap, but generally speaking, so much of what they make is of substandard quality that it just naturally occurs in the mind to, to equate anything made in China with crap. Also, Chinese workers, they are half as productive as the average Turkish worker, right? So, it's no longer economical to manufacture in China. So you have manufacturers reshoring, returning to the United States, or they're setting up elsewhere, but frequently they're setting up in Mexico. So China and Russia falling apart, United States stronger than ever. Georgian secessionist territories, which share a land border with Russia proper, Transnistria is on its own. The only way to supply it is through Ukraine, and that has obviously stopped. So the Moldovans and their sponsors in Romania have now a vested interest in ending this historical uh, aberration, and I would expect to see that being wrapped up within a year or two. Okay, so that's in the former Soviet Union. Uh, the second big category is um, Israel. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, the Russians have very publicly, unfortunately for them, uh, relocated a lot of hardware from Syria to Ukraine, specifically air defense equipment, to help them with their assaults. Which means that if you are Israel, the only thing that is standing in your way of going after the Syrian regime is someone from the Biden administration saying, you know what, we really don't want a nuclear event to erupt because there are Russian troops involved. Well, the tone of the Biden administration in the last 72 hours has kind of changed. Now it's more of a, like, 
you kids go have fun sort of vibe. So I expect us to see some very interesting pyrotechnics between the Israelis and the Syrians in a very short period of time, followed by the Syrians suing for peace, which means that we get to revisit the entire Syrian civil war now without the Russians being players. Iran is going to factor that into that as well, and that brings us to the final category, the ones that the United States really cares about. Now, I don't think the United States is about to go after Iran. It's not like Iran without Russia is actually all that much weaker. It's more like the United States saw Russian sponsorship of Iran as a problem because it meant that going after Iran meant there would be problems in other areas that we care more about. So I don't think we're about to, like, go and knock heads with the mullahs. But all of a sudden, Tehran has lost its primary weapons sponsor and its primary Security Council sponsor, and that is going to force the Iranians to think differently and act differently in every theater that they care about. So this is a negotiation question more than a military one. On that general topic are the two remaining issues that the Americans care about, Cuba and Venezuela. In both cases, the United States is, um, hmm, finds it awkward. Now, in the case of Cuba, the Cuban government has had an on-again, off-again interest in renegotiating the terms of its relationship with everyone in the Western Hemisphere. So you should expect that to pick up again. It started under the W. Bush administration. It continued under Obama. We will now see a rebound under the Biden administration. And that just leaves Venezuela. If it wasn't for the likelihood of global energy shortages, this would be an opportunity for the Biden administration to end the Venezuelan regime once and for all. So now it is purely a question of how quickly energy can be brought online from other players and how that informs. Okay, so Brandon says America is falling. Bro, America's not falling. You're falling. All right. You want to be able to offload your own frustrations with life and imagine that there's something wrong with, with America, that uh, America's you know, deep failings, America's terminal decline is, is somehow an excuse for whatever is frustrating you in your own life. You live in an incredibly, if you live in America, incredibly prosperous society with abundant opportunities. But if your life's not working out, then it's so much easier to blame America and to imagine that America's in terminal decline rather than to build up your own life. And uh, Brandon says, I am well off and work is optional for me. America is choking on wokeness. Uh, Baron says, I believe no one else is capable of taking over from us. China is too weird. Russia isn't that bright on average. And uh, Indians have low social cohesion. Uh, Brandon says, Luke is good at reading and regurgitating, but less good at analyzing and thinking and forming a unique hot take. Well, give me a more unique... Well, there aren't degrees of uniqueness. Give me a, a, a better take than vouch nationalism, all right? Vouch nationalism. The time has come where if you're going to have substantial privileges in a society like owning a gun or driving a car or having kids, you should have to have people vouch for you who are going to be accountable if you misbehave. We need to move from this individualist society towards a little bit more of a communitarian communal social society so yes vouch nationalism quite innovative wow thank you so much uh, laponius and i've got more thoughts where that came from now press one if you think the world is filled with demons there are a lot of advantages to believing that the world around us is filled with demons and that it's demons who are our biggest obstacle in trying to create a, a sane society Right. Demons are out there. They're, they're promoting degenerate agendas. Demons are you know, taking over the Democratic Party. Demons are the obstacle. All right. So there are benefits to this way of thinking. It can be one, it can be exciting. And two, it can be clarifying. 
and three it may connect you with uh, supernatural forces right and therefore four it may connect you to other people all right so it gives you kind of an in-group identity and it makes the world a much more enchanted magical and exciting place so press one if you believe in demons are for example destroying america but there are significant problems with believing in demons so one it will in all likelihood tend to make you more passive it will tend to make you more irrational it will tend to make you less effective and you will discount other people who disagree with you and just simply dismiss them as demons which will mean there won't be any moral barriers between you and whatever you want to do to them so brandon is a man of extraordinary tolerance like after i i just went after him and he's he's just coming back with the thoughtful responses Look, if I build a vouch social network, will you promote it? You bet I will. Brandon says, how about returning to what has worked for 200 plus years? I am down with that, Brandon. And uh, I, I appreciate you being such a mensch in the chat. You, you're a consistent uh, joy to have in, in the chat. And uh, you're a living, breathing example of the beauties of vouch nationalism. Right, Brandon says, imagine outsourcing everything to china and thinking it won't backfire well let's just take the iphone all right the most the most uh dollar rich all right the most productive the the most uh affluent parts of the iphone are here in america it's the 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 riches that come from the iphone are from the design and the marketing and the invention of the iPhone, right? The Chinese are simply sticking little bits together, right? So you're outsourcing the the stuff that will, you know, eventually simply be done by machines. You can just look up reshoring. I'll, I'll Google it right now if you think it's it's a delusion, right? There's just massive amounts of, of reshoring now. So frontline is reshoring production, the answer to supply chains, reshoring high tech jobs accelerates as supply chain woes continue. All right. Automation use surging with reshoring, reshoring boom continues. Surge in reshoring activity continues. U.S. companies are reshoring at a rapid rate pace. Here's how to take advantage. Opportunities for advantage, reshoring manufacturing. Will reshoring chip production help fix the supply chain? Globalization of trade isn't ending, but more companies are backing away from manufacturing overseas, and instead they are moving towards reshoring. So there is a massive shift in jobs and in manufacturing back to the United States. Just put reshoring into Google News, and you'll see dozens of articles on reshoring. It's a massive phenomenon. Okay, one of the downfalls of believing that demons are all around us is that it will, it can very likely uh, mentally destabilize you and it can remove any moral compunctions with how you deal with other people. So there's a three-part uh, interesting Netflix documentary series, Sins of Our Mother, about a Mormon woman who becomes particularly religious and starts seeing demons all around her, including with her two children and with her husband. It seemed so off. 
I would research Lori's name and then I found their Her podcast and I was listening to that. In the pre-mortal world, and I went to other worlds, I fought in this war for millennia. And that's who I am. And I came down here to be a warrior and fight. But then I remember Charles was sending emails before he was murdered. She, she's lost her mind. Uh, I, I, I never read them. Colby and I weren't interested in that. We thought it was really dramatic and not our business. He was freaking out. And at that time, it looked like a guilty person. I, I was convinced that he had cheated at least. I was like, I'm not saying anything. This is between you and my mom. You're adults. I have too much going on in my life to worry about your marriage with her. You guys need to figure this out. So I went back and I started reading all the emails Charles had sent us. I was like, I just I have to see what he was saying. That's when I found these family history documents. The email itself was actually a forwarded email to Lori. Charles wrote, she calls her own daughter a dark spirit. Please help her, Charles Vallow. My throat fell in my stomach. It was just like the list of our friends and family, and they are listed as light and dark spirits. We were both like, what does that mean, light and dark spirits? She thinks I'm a dark spirit, whatever that means. And I saw my name on there, and I was a three dark spirit. This is totally not okay. Like someone sat there and made this list as if they are like God or something, making a list of who's good, who's evil, to see like my wife is dark, my brother's dark, my cousin's dark. Everyone on this list is basically someone that didn't love and adore my mom. And scrolling down, I saw Tylee's name on there, and she was a 4.1 dark spirit. So how does she pose a threat to your children? I don't know what she's going to do with them. I don't know if she's going to flee with them. She's going to hurt them. And then I saw the guy who had sent the email to Lori. And I was like, who the hell is Chad Daybell? Okay, so this this couple just loses its mind, starts dividing people as demons, and then murders them, including two of the woman's own children. Okay, let's go to the chat. Brandon says, you mentioned the electric unicycle is an example where China dominates the U.S. in tech innovation. I have to admit, I don't know anything about electric unicycle innovation. Most engineering graduates in the U.S. go on to administrative jobs and do no engineering at all, as opposed to those crack Chinese engineers, all right? Those cutting-edge Chinese engineers. So for every seven graduates of Chinese universities in engineering, okay, for every seven Chinese engineers, only one, on average, is capable and competent enough to work in the West. All right, what do you think... Chinese engineering students study. About 40% of what they study at university are the teachings of Chairman Mao. Like, How effective do you think that is for engineering? How many of the world's great engineering schools are in China? Right? China most Chinese don't even graduate from high school. Chinese engineers, by and large, are pathetic. Chinese technical quality, the quality of what they make, by and large, is pathetic. The quality of Chinese education, by and large, is pathetic. Quality of Chinese engineering, by and large, 
is pathetic. China has higher standards for education than the U.S., then how come most Chinese don't even go to high school? They don't even go to high school. One-third of Chinese under 18 are retarded. They're retarded. One-third. The country is so polluted, right? The air, the water, the filth, right? About a third of their kids are retarded. Most Chinese don't even attend high school. Their universities suck. They're communist propaganda machines. Their, their, the productivity of their workforce, right? It's half that of Turkey. Oh, those, don't we all just naturally associate Turks with super high productivity? Well, China is so pathetic, they can't even reach better than one half the productivity levels of Turkey. Right. Chinese engineering graduates, right? About 15% uh, are competent. About 15%, right? After spending about 40% of their university education studying the works of Chairman Mao. Do you really want to live in a high rise that is designed by people who spend 40% of their university education studying the works of Chairman Mao? China falling apart. China is done, bro. Absolutely done. Okay, what's going on with uh, Sean Hannity? Let's have a look here. Pennsylvania Senate candidate Dr. Oz will be here with a special message for the radical socialist trust fund brat in a hoodie, John Fetterman guy that is not fit for office, never had a job in his life. But first, we begin once again in beautiful Martha's Vineyard, where after a full 24 hours of intense emergency virtue signaling, well, the island's uber-wealthy, uber-woke residents, they booted all of their newly arrived guests out of town. They're gone. As of 8 a.m. this morning, the 50 illegal immigrants who flew in from Florida were rounded up, loaded onto buses, and shipped to a U.S. military base. How loving, thoughtful, and accommodating of the left. Now, according to local Democrats, there just wasn't enough room on the 55,000-acre island for the 50 illegal immigrants. Uh, not our problem, they were saying. You have the liberal, racist, xenophobic, let's see, millionaires, billionaires who live on... Look, I, I try to create a show here where we take the, the best of disparate cultures. I like to think of us as a bunch of crackheads, but the good kind of crackheads on, on spiritual crack. We, we take the best of crackheads. I mean, you can, you can criticize crackheads for this or that, but at least it's an ideology. Like, at least it's an in-group. I mean, crackheads, I mean... They often have a lot of energy. So let's take the best from crackheads and, and adopt it into our lives. Let's take the best of gay bathhouse culture w without the, the sin and the sodomy. Uh, just, just think of gay bathhouse culture as, you know, a, a caring in-group. And you know, let's take the best of monkeypox, right? Not the, not the nasty parts of, of monkeypox, but... Let's just embrace that feeling of vulnerability that, that comes when you've got these, you know, ever-expanding, you know, anal postules. You know, let, let's recognize that, that, that we're all vulnerable here, that I'm just sharing my delusions and you're just sharing your delusions. So, so let's, let's take the, the best of, of crackhead culture, 
of uh, retard culture, of, of monkeypox culture, of, of gay bathhouse culture, and let us let us reason together, and, and let's begin by just hitting the spiritual crack pipe of truth. All right, let's let's just imbibe some spiritual crack. Whoa, whoa, not not the the illegal kind, not not the bad kind, but. Uh, Let's have some spiritual crack from, from the show Peep Show, season Hello, two. Tony. Episode two. You did, didn't you? Oh, yeah. And you did, obviously. Oh, yeah. Spicy. Clinical, more like. What you got in there? It's a bit of crack. Crack? Cracksy bands? Relax. It's not Blue Peter. It's a nice little relaxing smoke of crack. Come on, let's all take just a nice relaxing smoke of spiritual crack right now. And, and let's, you know, move beyond uh, a judgmental, superior attitude towards crackheads. And, and let's, let's celebrate what's good in getting monkeypox. Let's celebrate in what's good about having HIV. Let's celebrate what's good about being retarded. Let's celebrate the greatness in our homeless population. Let's celebrate the wonders of gay bathhouse culture, you know, without any of the, the downsides and the, the sin and the sodomy. All right, let's, let's celebrate celebration time come on boom, boom, boom. i want to celebrate i just want to teach the world to sing and how did i get here talking about the dissolution of the russian and chinese empires i, I just want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony Oy vey. all right so i enjoy a weekly column by Thomas Edsel, he's a leftist, writes for the New York Times, but very thoughtful. And his latest column is, why aren't you voting in your financial self-interest? All right. So why do millions of Americans on both the right and the left ignore their own economic self-interest when they choose which political party to support? All right. So now we've got these rabid culture wars. And how have, how have these culture wars superseded what what used to be the basis of politics in America, like the the division of resources. I, I thought politics was supposed to be about, you know, who gets what, like who gets, you know, which social forms of social welfare spending. But in America, apparently, and around the world, when people get rich, they start placing a higher weight on moral considerations, which is inducing rich moral liberals to swing Democrat, meaning universal moral principles such as caring about what's going on in ukraine and kenya so the parties are now polarizing on social issues because their voter bases have become more extreme so the poor morally conservative voter is now more likely to vote republican even if his materially preferred economic policy has moved to the left so poor moral conservative swing republican this pushes the republicans further right on social issues and the democrats further left on social issues so Moral values are, in essence, luxury goods. And I just think this is such a reductionist understanding of life. Right? What we're all doing is we all want to feel good. I mean, I, I'm maybe just having a, a, a flashback to a more promiscuous time in my life where women would tell me, I just want to feel good. I just want someone to tell me that I feel pretty. I just want to feel full. Why don't you just fill me up? But we all just want to feel good. And what feels good is not just money, but we have stories, right? We have hero systems about how the world works. And when something's going on that challenges or smudges 
or damages your hero system, such as every time you go to the New York Times and uh, you're assaulted by all these pictures of, of men kissing men, all right? If that tarnishes your hero system, then you're going to be uh, feeling bad. And people don't want to feel bad. Every living organism wants to create an environment around it that is most conducive to its flourishing. And so we all have all these synaptic neurological impulses, you know, neurons wiring and firing, and we have forces going on inside of us, hormones and neurons and all sorts of things going on inside of us. And we want to feel good. And much of what makes us feel good is when we can shape the world around us to accord with what makes us feel good, with what leads to our thriving, right? I'm all about the human thriving, bro. So when you have same-sex marriage and that, you know, makes you feel bad, then you are being damaged. You're being hurt. If, if uh, you conceive of the military as a heterosexual enterprise and then homosexuals start pouring into the military under a don't ask, don't tell policy, then you feel harmed. If you believe that able-bodied people should work and instead they are getting incentivized to act in antisocial ways, then you feel awful, all right? So people want to feel good, and it's not like money is the only thing that makes people feel good, all right? So this reductionist idea, why don't people just vote with their self-interest? People vote for their overall interests, and morality and hero systems and stories we tell ourselves about how, how the world works are an integral part of our you know, biological life. We would be crushed by our insignificance if we didn't have some sort of hero system that we signed onto that gives our lives and, and our daily deeds transcendent meaning. So for the last 30 years, in particular, Democrats have increasingly placed a stronger emphasis on universalist moral concepts, a trend that's considerably weaker among Republicans. Donald Trump and his moral language is far less universalist, more communal than that of any other presidential nominee in recent history. And so the richest people, right, they may place far more emphasis on moral and cultural issues. Well, everyone places emphasis on moral and cultural issues because you can't get up in the morning and go through life without a moral worldview, without an instinct that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. So we've got economic shocks that boost conflict between cultural groups, that this can trigger shifts to cultural identity. So if jobs get outshored and people you know, don't have jobs and it's the more educated who benefit, right, then working class voters may switch to uh, voting for the right. So losers from international trade tend to throw their support for right-wing and conservative parties. And uh, Rob Henderson published an op-ed in 2019, Luxury Beliefs, the latest status symbol for rich Americans. So he says, in the past, upper-class Americans used to display their social status with luxury goods. Today, they do it with luxury beliefs. So the upper classes have found a clever solution to the problem that everyone can have access now to luxury items. They have luxury beliefs. So these are the ideas and the opinions that confer status on the rich at very little cost while taking a significant toll on the lower classes. 
on the island. They just say they don't have enough resources to accommodate them. I'm not buying that. And over at MSDNC, you have Chuck Todd saying that the situation was inhumane because of the lack of infrastructure. Uh, what about Texas's 1.1 million illegals this year alone? Never mind the nearly 2 million last year. Now, it's not clear if Chuck was worried about the illegal immigrants or the long-suffering residents, the wealthy people in Martha's Vineyard, who were forced to endure a whole whopping 24 hours of uninvited guests. Now, either way, it is clear tonight that uh, America's virtuous liberals are no longer able to ignore the two-year crisis. By the way, the crisis they caused at our southern border, and they know just who to blame. Take a look. It's a stunt using human beings to score political points. Well, I thought the word inhumane was a good good one to use in this particular case. The people don't know where they're going. The people that are there don't know you're coming. Right. Some politicians would rather not only have an issue, but exacerbate it to the extent of literally human trafficking, as you said. And it's all due to treating people as political pawns, leaving some migrants who might have been misled to believe they were going elsewhere, as reported by NPR, on a literal island that doesn't have any infrastructure designed to help them at all. In a word, it's inhumane. Instead of working with us on solutions, Republicans are playing politics with human beings, using them as props. What right, as opposed to politics as usual when politicians never use people as props. This is really shocking. All right. You're probably wondering, Forty, what books have you been reading lately? I've been reading a 2015 work by my favorite moral philosopher. Can you guess who my favorite moral philosopher is? Yes, you're right. It's John M. Doris. His book from 2015, Talking to Ourselves, Reflection, Ignorance, and Agency. Pretty sexy title. So great anecdote to start the book. So when I was a kid, I would find these books by Vance Packard in my dad's library, and I'd read them, The Hidden Persuaders, like books like that. So in 1957, there was this marketing consultant, James Vickery, and he reported huge sales increases at a New Jersey theater concession. And all he had to do, he said, was intermittently flash, eat popcorn and drink Coca-Cola on the screen for one three hundredth of a second, and then unsuspecting moviegoers ate more popcorn and drank more Coke. So very famous anecdote. So before long, subliminal advertising was a staple of Cold War paranoia, paranoia at exposés like Vance Packers, The Hidden Persuaders, and other books like Subliminal Seduction or Glutting Bookstores. The New Yorker pronounced Vance Packard's opus as an authoritative and frightening report on how manufacturers, fundraisers, and politicians are attempting to turn the American mind into a kind of catatonic dough that will buy, give, or vote at their command. Pretty creepy stuff. This catatonic dough, you've got movie night as night of the living noshes with film buffs cast as junk food zombies. So what was sinister is that we have all these Americans who are victims of subliminal sales techniques and they're made to do things. Their, their desires are manipulated without their knowledge or consent. Something sneaky is definitely going on. Federal regulators stepped in, ruled this advertising deceptive. Well, turns out the alarmists were unduly alarmed. So after decades of research, scientific evidence for the effectiveness of subliminal advertising remains in very short supply. In other words, this is all based on a lie. And so this just kind of reminds me of talk radio and live streaming. Like you get, you know, this sexy topic, this sexy title, this, you know, feed people's paranoia. And it's just so fun to tune into, but it's just so often bogus. 
And I guess because in part uh, I, I need to think about talk radio and, and live streaming as a conversation and what makes it for a good conversation and not, you know, an accurate recitation of, of facts. People, people will usually tune into punditry because they want to feel something. They just want to feel good, man. I just want to feel full. Fill me up. Make me feel good. That's why most people go for punditry and live streams. So apparently a majority of Americans have heard of subliminal advertising. A majority of those believe it works. And you still have books like The Secret Sales Pitch and Subliminal Persuasion. They're still getting written, still getting published. And there was even a celebratory 50th anniversary edition of The Hidden Persuaders appearing in 2007, all based on a lie. It just... So much of what's in the news and what's doled out by pundits and clerics is just a lie. Now, you're probably wondering, Forty, what is the philosophy of reflectivism? Okay, that's the doctrine to which the exercise of human agency consists of judgment and behavior ordered by self-conscious reflection about what to think and do. So if you think it and then you decide on something and then you do it, right? This is the notion that we... Can, can think our way to a better life. And so when we act, this is the product of reflection. So people correctly divine the beliefs, desires, and other psychological states relevant to their decisions, and they make these decisions in light of these emotional states or, or reasons and act accordingly. Now, this sounds great, right? Who, who, who doesn't venerate this, this idea? But this assumption is completely compromised by decades of research in the social, cognitive, and behavioral sciences. So reflection appears a very limited portion of human conduct. Behavior tends to be thoughtless, quite unconstrained by reflection. And when people do reflect, there's usually little warrant for confidence that these reflections are informed by accurate self-awareness. Sad. What they're doing is simply wrong. It's un-American. It's reckless. And we have a process in place to manage migrants at the border. Yeah, put them in Joe's cages, put in the middle of a pandemic. Really? Uh, okay, let's... Yeah, the, the chat is right. Donald Trump was the first American president in 60 years who successfully crushed illegal immigration in 2020 with his policies like Remain in Mexico. Trump did something amazing. He crushed illegal immigration. He was effective, finally, by 2020 at crushing illegal immigration. Then his successor, Joe Biden, undid many of those policies. And as a result, millions of illegal aliens are flooding into our country. And on that happy and cheery note, let's go out with some, uh, some spiritual crack. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Spicy. Clinical, more like. What are you going there? It's a bit of crack. Crack? Crack. Cracksy bands? Relax. Some blue wedding? Peter and a nice little relaxing smoke of crack. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Nice little relaxing smoke of spiritual crack. Bye-bye.